Let's do some preaching. John chapter 2 is where we are tonight. So as I said this morning, we're into a new series. A new series is in John's Gospel. And over the next 21 sermons, we're going to be covering the whole book of John's. That's 21 chapters and 21 sermons. So we're kind of just skimming at the service. There's so much Like you could have had about 16 different part sermon to even chapter one this morning. And we tried to cover that just in 20 minutes this morning. So we're not kind of going through first by first. We're going through chunk by chunk. So hopefully it will whet your appetite and that you will go back home and you will study the rest of the book yourself over the summer. There's some great commentaries. If you want to know what those great commentaries are, come have a conversation with me at the end. So John chapter two is where we'll be. We'll read this. Then we'll pray, and then we'll unpack it together. So we're going to read the first 11 verses. This is the, the story that you probably already know, or you think you already know, the one where Jesus turns water into wine. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and the disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, There is no wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jar with water. So they filled it to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some water and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the, servant had, knew the, though the servants who had drawn it knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the, chapter, or then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter and the verses that we have read that talk about revealing your glory. God, as we come to this chapter tonight, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will be our teacher. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to your truth. I pray against every distraction in this room, every distraction that is just buzzing in our heads. Holy Spirit, will you come? Holy Spirit, will you be our teacher? Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus, reveal yourself, reveal your glory to us tonight. And we ask these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. So if you were here this morning, you know that we're in this new series. If you were here this morning, we covered chapter one. Chapter one is that big, heavy, theological chapter that we tried to get through in about 20 minutes this morning. And what we did find is that there's such massive theological themes in that chapter that just want to blow our theological mind. They want us to just be overwhelmed by the fastness and the greatness and the majesty and the beauty of God, and they want to humble us. And those first opening verses, which I read at the start of the night sermon, 
that's what exactly happens. One theologian says of chapter 1 this, chapter 1 is considered to be one of the most sublime sections in all of scriptures. That is a massive claim. Chapter 1 of John with those massive theological statements and heavy theological things to get our heads around is considered to be one of the most sublime sections in all of Scripture. That's again a 10 out of 10 rating on IMDb. This is big, important, heavy, heavy stuff. A massive claim at the very start of chapter 1. But then we kind of come to chapter 2. And I wonder what you thought of chapter 2. Because we could be really, really impressed with the theology of chapter 1. But then we come to chapter 2, and it's a bit of a disappointing way to start a chapter. Particularly falling off the back of what was in chapter 1. And I'm saying that because in chapter 2, John begins to tell us about these seven signs. We said this morning that John will work his way through these 21 chapters, and he'll give us seven signs and seven I am statements about Jesus. And they're supposed to communicate who Jesus is. They're supposed to communicate the uniqueness of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. In fact, John tells us at the end of his chapter, in chapter 21, exactly why he has written this book. So this is the reason in chapter 20, verse 30, why John writes his gospel. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miracles in addition to all the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So here we have these signs, or these seven I am's, or these seven signs, or this chapter two is supposed to communicate something so powerful about Jesus that when we understand it, we see, I understand it, I get it, I believe that, and I want to follow Jesus. That's the whole point of what John is doing. So chapter two is supposed to be this moment we go, I see who Jesus is. Not only do I see who Jesus is, but I want to follow that Jesus. I want to believe in that Jesus. So let's go back to the question. Are you surprised at the start of chapter two? Because all we're at is just a wedding. It doesn't seem like a natural jump from chapter one to chapter two. It doesn't seem to be like a spectacular setting, chapter two. So if you're going to be John writing this gospel, you want to Start with your massive claims. He does that in chapter one. These go beg or go home claims about who Jesus is. But we're a little bit disappointed as we come to chapter two. Because in chapter two, all that really happens in this story is we gate crash a wedding. So you and I tonight have just gate crashed a wedding. We've gate crashed a wedding and we're not told who the couple are. We're never met. We never meet the happy couple. We don't know their name. We don't know if this is a big party or a small party. The only detail we're told about this gate, this party that we've gate crashed is in verse 3. And in verse 3, we're told this is a party that is run out of wine. And that is the worst type of party to gate crash. It's run out of wine. Party is about to be over in this. Can you see why this is a disappointing start? Unusual, really mundane place to start. If you were John writing this gospel, where would you start? Chapter one, massive claims, that's great. Chapter two, not so sure. 
Don't we know all the stories where Jesus healed people? Don't we know all the stories where Jesus raised people from the dead? Wouldn't that be a better place to start? Wouldn't that be a place that hooks us in? Those big massive claims of Jesus. But in verse 11 of chapter 2, we read this. The, the, this miraculous sign in Cana of Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. So Jesus is revealing his glory in this chapter. And his disciples believe in him. So not only is Jesus doing something really powerful and revealing his glory in this, this is the chapter where the disciples get it and they believe him and put their faith in him and really begin to follow him. So we need to dig a little deeper. So we haven't just gate crashed the wedding. We haven't just gate crashed the wedding with all the parties just about to crash and burn. So let's look at this. Recap the plot. So we've got a wedding. So there's a wedding, there's a party, the music is blasting. You can imagine the scene. You can imagine that the groom of this party is throwing down some of his best dance shapes in this party. He's oblivious to what's going on. He's oblivious to what's about to come next. He has no idea that they're about to run out of wine. And this is a big deal. He has no idea the potential ridicule that's going to come his way. This isn't only going to ruin his day. This is going to ruin his reputation forever. Jesus' mother is at this party. The disciples are at this party. So from that little bit of information, we know that, well, this must be a family friend or someone that's really, really close to the disciples. So this is a family or a close friend wedding that we're at. And at some point during the wedding, the kitchen staff go down to the cellar and they check for one last time that there's not a crate of wine that they have missed or they have overlooked or that they haven't opened. They check once, they check twice, they realize that this groom, with the one job that he was given, the one job he was trusted with, go and get wine for the party, while the bride is up to her eyes and all the other important stuff, up to her eyes in fact, Han, while she's there, he is cutting corners, trying to save a few pennies, and he hasn't ordered enough wine. And the kitchen staff have just realized that the last glass of wine has been poured. What follows is a strange conversation between Jesus and his mother in verse 4. Jesus starts talking about the time or about the hour, and when we read it, didn't you think Jesus seemed a little rude in his reply to his mother? Jesus then uses six stone water jars. He turns water into wine. The servants take some of that wine to the master of the banquet. It's such high-quality wine that the master of the banquet praises the bridegroom. Jesus thus refuses his glory to the disciples, put the faith in him, and the party continues, and everyone is oblivious to what almost happened at the wedding. Do you get what's going on? That's a recap, really quick, of what's going on. Let's unpack each of those a little bit deeper and try and see what really is going on at this party. Weddings are a big deal. You know that, I know that. We all love a good wedding. My job kind of means I get to be at more weddings than most people um, would be at, but we all love a good wedding. They're always a big deal. There's always loads of organization that goes into a wedding. And it was no exception back in biblical times. In fact, in biblical times, you didn't just have a one-day wedding. You had a week-long wedding. So it was a big deal. And the person who financed that was the groom. And the reason the groom financed the party is because it proved to everyone else around that he was responsible and that he was able to provide, look after his wife for the rest of their life together. It showed to everyone that he was responsible. That was the point of that. 
So what you would do is you would have your wedding party. You would have the best of food. You would have the best of wine. And if any of the food or the wine ran out and the wine runs out in this chapter, that was a massive cultural embarrassment. The context of where we're working with this passage is an honor and shame culture. So this is a shame. This is a shame that you would never get to live down. This was a a taboo. You never would recover from this. The shame that you would get from being the guy that didn't order enough wine or didn't order enough full of fonts or whatever it was, the shame would stick with you the rest of your life. Not only that, but your in-laws could sue you for running out of wine or for running out of food or not having a good party. And no one wants to start married life with your parents-in-law suing you. That's always awkward when you meet up later in the year for chats and food and Christmas. So here we are in this passage in John chapter 2, and it is about to be ruined. There's no, awful, there's no local off-license where someone can run off to. There's no delivery where a guy can come clinking along on his bike and save the day. This is a disaster. Verse 3, Mary goes to Jesus. And it would seem that she's concerned about this catering disaster. Because it's not all chapter 2 really is. Like, why would we be concerned about a wedding party that we've gatecrashed? We don't know the couple. We've never met them. Why would we be concerned? This is basically a catering disaster. Mary goes and tells Jesus that the wine has run out. And that's a smart move if you have a son who is able to do miracles. So she knows that she can go and have a conversation with Jesus, and her expectation is that Jesus will do something. Now, this is Jesus' first miracle. So we're not told that Jesus had this little miracle up his sleeve that his mum knew about, that she knew he could turn water into wine. He was always messing about at home as a kid with bottles of Evian, always turning them into wine. We're not told that. She doesn't expect that that's what's going to happen in the passage. Her expectation is that Jesus has supernatural powers and that he could do something. She's not quite sure what that might be, but her expectation is she will tell Jesus a problem, and Jesus will solve that problem. But here's the question. Why would you use your supernatural powers to help out at this wedding, to perform a miracle so that we avoid a catering disaster? Did you notice that Jesus answers his mother in quite a strange way? The NIV that we read in is kind of softer, so it will read, Dear woman, why involve me? My time has not yet come. But the original is much more abrupt. It basically says, Woman, why do you concern me? This has nothing to do with me. My time has not yet come. So we have to ask two questions from that comment of Jesus. One is, why does Jesus' tone seem so abrupt? And secondly, what does Jesus mean by the time or the hour? So let's look at the tone. Why didn't Jesus just say to his mom, look, mom, I'll sort this. Give me a moment and I'll sort this. Because that's exactly what happens in the chapter. In verse 7, Jesus sorts this. He turns water into wine. Everybody's happy. Why didn't he just say that? Well, maybe his response is supposed to communicate something or demonstrate something. So let's go back to Mary. Why did Mary say? She assumes that Jesus will help, and he will. But her assumption is that if she just has a nice little friendly motherly word in her son's ear, that Jesus will do what she asks that it will result in a miracle. 
She has this unique mother-son bond relationship. She can literally ask Jesus for anything in the world that she so desires. What a privilege that would be. Imagine having that inside track. Imagine that being, you don't only know Jesus, but Jesus is your son. So her assumption is that Jesus, based on that relationship, based on that intimacy of mother and son, will perform a miracle because she's asked him to perform a miracle. So why does Jesus push her back? Because he pushes her back just slightly with his tone. Maybe the reason he pushes her back is because he is stating that his obligation or his obedience is to God and to God alone. Jesus is trying to communicate to everyone around that he won't be influenced or manipulated by any other human agenda. He's going to follow God's will and God's timing, not anyone else's will and not anyone else's timing, and not even his mother's will or his mother's timing. And that doesn't mean that he hasn't got this close, loving relationship between the two of them, but he is communicating that there is no special family pass. There's no perks. There's no inside track that we get to assume or that we get to inherit. Mary has to come to Jesus the exact same way that you and I have to come. We have to come by faith. The second thing that we notice here is that there's this reference to time or are. What does Jesus mean by that? That sounds a little strange. And maybe if we could understand what Jesus means by time or what he means by are, then it might shed a little bit of light on what it, why he was maybe a little bit abrupt with his mum. So you need to read the entire gospel. You need to read all 21 chapters, and every time you come to the word time or are, it always, always talks about Jesus' death or Jesus going to the cross. So, for example, in John chapter 12, verse 27, where Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from my death. No, it was for this very reason that I have come to this hour. So here we are in John chapter 2, and Jesus is not looking at a party that's just run out of wine. He's not looking at a party that's just about to become a catering disaster. When Jesus thinks about wine, he is thinking about the time and he is thinking about his death in this passage. So that's what's running through Jesus' mind in this moment, okay? So that's an important thing to remember, okay? What about this wine? Well, there's two things about wine. So there's a New Testament thing about wine and there's an Old Testament thing about wine. So we've hinted at the New Testament one about Jesus' blood, but let's think about the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you read about wine in the Old Testament, it always refers to joy and it always refers to abundance. So you'd have the likes of Isaiah. So Isaiah, when he's talking about Jesus coming or the Messiah coming, which happens about 700 years later, when he's talking about that in Isaiah 25 verse 6, he'll use words like this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all his people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wine. There's the wine. So it's pointing towards joy. It's pointing towards abundance. It's pointing, to, pointing towards a party. It's pointing towards hope. And it's pointing towards Jesus. This is a day of great joy. And there is an abundance in John chapter 2. 
When Jesus turns the water into wine, he doesn't just turn it into any old wine. He turns into the most expensive of wine, the best vintage of wine that you could have tasted. That's why the waiter is so surprised in verse 10. The reason he's surprised in verse 10 is because, well, it was typical you bring out your expensive wine first, but after a few glasses of that expensive wine, you're Joyful little taste buds aren't going to notice if someone then comes along and swaps out the expensive wine for a slightly cheaper bottle of wine. We just don't notice that. So that's the way a party would have worked back in those days. The expensive running all the way down to the least expensive. But here is Jesus in this chapter, and he produces the best of the best, expensive, luxurious, vintage wine. And he doesn't just supply a little bit. If you do the maths with the the six jars and the 20 or 30 gallons of that and then try and figure out how much of that could go into a bottle of wine as I did this week, you end up getting about a 1,000 bottles of wine. Like this is extravagant, over the top, more than you could ever need expensive wine that comes at the end of the party. That's why the maitre d' is so surprised about this. Jesus provides the best. The best. When we're on a brink of disaster, Jesus turns that upside down. Jesus turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. He takes that that is dry, that which is empty, and he fills it. He fills it to overflowing. So that's what the Old Testament's talking about when it comes to wine. The New Testament, you know this because we do it whenever we come around communion. We're always thinking about the blood that Jesus shed, Jesus' lifeblood that was shed when we think of wine. So the Last Supper, the likes of Matthew 28, Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So the wine means Jesus' blood. The wine almost means joy and abundance as well. So what about this sign? So that's what it means, but what is the sign? What does it really mean? Because obviously it's not about drinking glasses of wine or having loads of bottle of wine at home. That's not what this is about. What is the sign in this passage? Well, notice what Jesus uses to turn the water into wine. It tells you in verse 6. Six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial cleaning. That's strange, The reason that's strange is because wouldn't you expect Jesus to use like jars that hold drinking water, not jars that are for washing in? See, in biblical culture as well, you'd have these large jars. Some of them would be as large for people to stand inside and dip down and get completely washed in. But more likely, it's jars that you could use for ceremonial cleaning. This was a law or a rule that was established in the Old Testament. So they've been doing this for hundreds and thousands of years. So before every meal, they would wash their hands. Before every meal, they would wash their utensils. And the reason they did that was to remind them that they needed to be cleansed, to remind them that God is holy and clean and that man or woman is unclean, that we're dirty. And the only way that we can come to God is through this religious ceremony of being cleansed. So it was very elaborate, very elaborate. And that's the exact jar that Jesus uses. That's a strange choice, isn't it? It's a strange choice. I wonder why Jesus is using the ceremonial cleansing, washing jars in this passage. Jesus is trying to communicate to you and I 
that he's doing away with something. He's doing away with that old system and he's bringing in this new system. So if you want to be clean, if you want to be right before God, if you want to be holy before God, then you have to come through Jesus. You have to be cleansed by Jesus. You have to be cleansed by his blood. You have to be washed by Jesus, not this religious ceremony that had been going on for years and years. So here's the point, here's the sign. We can't follow mere religious practices and expect to be made right with God. Or like Mary, we can't assume things and expect to be made right with God. We can't assume that we inherit something, so therefore we're right with God. We can't assume that, well, just because I'm doing this religious thing, then that makes me right with God. It's a bit like church. You can do church, but if you do church, all you get is church. So if you experience church, you can come along and you experience church, but all you experience is church. And sometimes you love the worship, sometimes you won't. Sometimes you love the preacher, sometimes you won't. Sometimes you love church, sometimes you won't. Sometimes you like this thing, sometimes you won't. If you do church, all you get is church. But if you experience Jesus, what you get is all of Jesus. You don't get a religion, you get a relationship. You don't get legalism, you get a life-changing relationship with Jesus that will change you forever. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. We get to receive something that we don't deserve. We get to receive something that we don't deserve because we can't earn it. It's gifted to us. It's gifted to us by grace, by mercy, by love, by Jesus. And doesn't that sound an awful lot like verses 9 and 10 in this passage of chapter 2? Because it's the master of the banquet who calls the bridegroom. And he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. The grim, puzzled-faced grim in our story gets praised. The guy in the story who has been irresponsible, the guy in the story who has cut some corners, the guy in the story that's tried to save some money, the guy in the story that's not responsible, not able to provide, is on the brink of a disaster of epic proportions that he would never live down. His life, his wedding day, wedding week, his reputation is about to be destroyed. That guy gets all the praise in this passage. But surely, as we read the passage, we're screaming inwardly at the maitre d', but it wasn't the groom. It was Jesus. Jesus did it all. We want to expose the groom. We want him to be held to account. Because it's not fair. How's that fair? It's not fair. I wonder if you get the point. I wonder if you get the sign. I wonder if that ring any bells. I wonder if that sound familiar. Someone who is undeserving is credited a significant gift. He gets a thousand bottles of the best vintage wine, but more than that, he gets to stand and avoid shame and keep his reputation. Isn't it true that we receive something from God? We receive a gift from God called salvation. We receive a blessing. We receive a reward. But aren't we the people in the story that mess up? Aren't we the one in the story that's irresponsible and unable to provide and oblivious to what is going on, oblivious to the potential threat that is surrounding us? 
Yet we are credited the righteousness of God because Jesus steps in not to save our party, but to save our soul. And Jesus saves our life by pouring out his life blood on a cross. And we get to avoid shame and our reputation is destroyed. We get to stand, not in society, we get to stand before a holy God, accepted, chosen, blessed, son, daughter, child of the Most High, and we don't deserve any of that. I said at the start that this seems like a, a strange story to start, doesn't it? It's all a bit mundane. It's a bit of a caring disaster, a wedding on the brink of ruin. Why would you use this story? Because that's exactly where Jesus meets you and I. He meets us in the mundane. He meets us in those broken moments of life, those disasters of life, those moments that are shattered, those events in our life that are ruined. He meets us when our reputations are in tatters. He meets us when our life feels dry and when it feels empty. He meets us when we're all out of party, when we're all out of friends, when we're all out of joy, and when we're all out of hope. And at that exact moment, Jesus steps in. The timing thing that Jesus is talking about is his death. And at just the right time, Jesus went to a cross to die for our sins so that we could be made right. And we deserve none of that. But his grace lavished upon us so that we can stand before God in such a privileged position. Jesus comes to offer us forgiveness, to offer us light, to offer us life, and to offer us hope. So whatever your mundane is, whatever your disaster is, Jesus can meet you in that moment. And we said this this morning, Jesus doesn't run from us. Jesus comes to us. He sets foot in this world. Jesus doesn't run from our mess. He comes and he stands in our mess with us. Here is Jesus. Jesus, who is God, who always existed, who had no beginning, who is from everlasting to everlasting, who created all things, sustains all things, is over all things, rules all things, is powerful and has power over all things. Here is Jesus standing in this wedding sorting out the mess that some person made. And he can stand in your life, whatever your circumstances are, and he can provide, he can heal, he can turn upside down, he can transform, he can renew your life. Let's pray together.